All right, we finished uh, Eliphaz's response, and now we're going to get into Bildad. Remember, these are a cycle of speeches, so we will hear from each of these people multiple times, three times for most of them, and this is our first interaction with Bildad. Eliphaz had one job, comfort your friend, in truly the darkest hours and moments of his life, and Eliphaz failed. So we're going to look at Bildad and see if he did any better. And I hope this is no spoiler for you, because I hope you've read the book of Job, but no, he does not do any better. In fact, pretty much the only thing that Eliphaz gets right, which is recognizing some of the goodness of Job, that he was a righteous man, uh, Bildad doesn't even go that far. Bildad's an easy character for many of us to figure out because some of us are this character and many of us know this person well. Bildad is the person for whom absolutely everything in life is black and white. They make very quick assessments. They might be very smart. Bildad seems like a very smart person. They make very quick judgments and assessments about what's happening, about what's going on in reality. They filter things by very defined categories, and then they say, this is how it is. I'm sorry if that hurts you. I'm not trying to be mean, but the facts are the facts. And that's Bildad. This is why he is so blunt even more so than Eliphaz, if you can believe that. For all the horrible things that Eliphaz says, Bildad says, hold my beer, goes even one better. Uh, Eliphaz, if you remember, said that Job was suffering for the kind of sin that is common to all people. That, that Job was a good man comparatively, but that everybody sins and that there is pu punishment and suffering and discipline for sin. And so if Job was, if Job would just hang in there, if he would confess his sin to God and just hang in there and not give up, things would get better. And again, he sprinkled a few nice things along the way about Job's goodness. The reason why Eliphaz thought that probably is what would happen, that Job, if he wanted to, could just hang in there for this. Bildad agrees that the the nate so and the disagreement then that that created between Job and Eliphaz was about how bad is this suffering? Because if if Eliphaz is saying you're getting suffering according to the depth of your sin, but you're a pretty good man, then Job looks at this kind of suffering and says that doesn't make any sense because for this suffering to fit into that model. I must be completely evil and wicked and, and have some major underlying sin that I know is not there. Then Bildad comes along and actually agrees with Job about the severity of his suffering. Bildad does a more thoughtful analysis of what Job is going through and says, yeah, this is really, really bad. This is not ordinary suffering for ordinary sin. But what he concludes from that is that this extraordinary suffering must be the result of extraordinary sin. And that black and white view, that, well, that's the only way it can be, that's how the formula works, is why he shows no compassion for Job. The friends came here to comfort one is kind of this, well, things will be okay. God gave me a special vision. You just need to hang in there and it'll be all right. Well, that's not comforting because it's nonsense. And then Bildad comes in and is really, really, really sure that he's got this figured out. And there's just no room for compassion when things are that clear. Set your feelings aside, Job. Let me just tell you how God works. Let me give you these theological truths, and then you're just going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to come to terms that this is the way things are. Far more important to build at than how his friend feels is that God's character be defended. 
Now think about that statement for a minute, because I think a lot of us hear that and say, yeah, the defense of God's character is more important than your feelings. But first of all, if you're there to be the comforter to the one who is feeling in distress, you might want to just hold that thought for a moment. And secondly, why are you so convinced that God needs you to defend his character? Now, that's not that we won't ever correct error. It's not that theological truth and understanding who God is doesn't matter. All this is going to get worked out. But it's that, I try to think about it for myself as, what is your first reaction? And my first reaction is always, the error must be fixed. And that's not the right first reaction. (laughs) The first reaction is, how is this person feeling And why are they feeling that way? And you will find in the end of that analysis that they're feeling that way most likely because of an error, because of an error about God or about themselves or about their circumstances. But when you just go bursting into the scene like a bull in a china shop and say, we're going to fix all the errors and don't worry, at the end of this, you'll feel fine, doesn't work that way. Why did Jesus weep at Lazarus' death? Why why did Jesus mourn and wail for an unrepentant Jerusalem? Is Jesus unaware of the truth about God? Does Jesus have doubts about God's sovereignty? Paul hadn't written to the Romans yet, so maybe Jesus didn't know about this Romans 8.28 thing. No, right? Jesus has all of that information. And he weeps full knowledge that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he weeps and he wails and he mourns over an unrepentant Jerusalem. Full knowledge of everything that's coming. Why? Feelings do matter. Truth doesn't negate the reality of someone's feelings. Not that their feelings are valid. Not that their feelings are justified. This is the part us high justice people get worried about. But what if they shouldn't feel that way? We have to correct them so that they know that they shouldn't feel that way. Great. Here's the thing. They do feel that way. And we're so scared that God will not give us the opportunity to correct the record. That God will not give us the opportunity to defend his honor. We have no trust for how God is going to handle this whole situation. And so we say, look, God, if I'm going to get this thing right, I just got to set their feelings aside. I just got to tell them the truth. I got to shoot straight with them. That is what Bildad does. And it goes very, very poorly. You can do both. The reality is you can do both. You can know what's true about God and lament the effect of sin on people. That's why Jesus weeps at Lazarus. That's why Jesus wails for Jerusalem. He knows everything that's true about God. And he weeps, he laments the effects of sin on people. Bildad is deceiving himself, thinking that God must have his defense, and then ultimately that his defense is really about God. Bildad's defense is not really about God. The words are about God. The defense is about Bildad's own worldview. If what I'm saying isn't true, if what I believe isn't true, then I can't make any sense of the world. And that's Bildad's real fear here, is that if he were to take Job as truthful, suddenly Bildad's whole worldview falls apart. And so Bildad is so cut and dry, as most of us are. I mean, even in petty situations, I think about something my children say, something my wife says, something that somebody says at work that are contrary to what I believe to be true about a situation. Not eternal things, just a given situation at work or in the household. And I see how quickly I go on the attack. That can't be true. And in the back of my mind is because if that's true, it means I'm wrong and that's not a thing. (laughs) and that's what we're doing in these more important types of situations that's what Bildad is doing here Job what you're saying can't be true because as Jake likes to say in book club 
that would be completely devastating to my argument. <laughs> so that can't be the case. Um, who else in scripture, by the way, is a lot like Bildad? Who else sees things as completely black and white, utterly lacks compassion on other people, because if the need for compassion were true, it would totally blow up his whole worldview? Great work. Good job. <laughs> Jonah. This is Jonah. Jonah is, nah, y'all. Ninevites perish. That's the way things work. Israelites get good things. That's the way things work. I deserve this shade plant. They deserve a destructored city because that's how things work. And that's why Jonah has to end on a question. It has to end with kind of God sh shaking his head metaphysically and saying, you, you cared for this plant and you want me to not care for these hundreds of thousands of people in the city? To which we don't get Jonah's answer because the book's ends. But Jonah's answer, I promise you, is totally yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. Because that's what Jonah thinks. He is much like Bildad. His worldview's under attack. If Job is right, that this suffering is not because of an equally dramatic sin in Job's own life, then it means Bildad's wrong. And he doesn't have categories for that. And that's why Bildad reacts so strongly against Job. Eliphaz says some really uncharitable things. He says some very insensitive things. You don't get the sense that Eliphaz is angry with Job. Bildad is angry with Job. And he has clearly listened to Job's response to Eliphaz because Bildad will make several specific points, or he'll use several specific, unique phrases that come right out of Job's response in the previous chapters, and he'll turn those things around on him. So first, all right, Bildad begins with, God's justice proves that you are guilty. Who has eight, Job 8, 1 through 7? Justin. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, shoe answered how long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Job had lamented that this wasn't fair. That there was a disconnect between what he deserves, he's a good man, and what he's receiving. And remember, Job isn't thinking about this the wrong way, that if I do good, I get good. Job is thinking about this in the broad categories that God teaches us to think about. If you are righteous, you will have life. If you are wicked, you will perish. There will be punishment. Job's just thinking in those broad categories. And he says, when I look at my own life, that is not what I see. There's a disconnect, and that, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. And Bildad disagrees. That cannot be the case for Bildad. Remember a couple chapters ago in chapter 6 when Job was talking about Eliphaz's answer and he suggested that Eliphaz's answer was just a bunch of hot air. He's just blowing a bunch of hot air. So <laughs> Bildad starts with, in verse 2, listen up, you windbag. It's the same hot air word. You want to you say his answer's hot air? You're the one who's full of hot air saying all this nonsense. And then Bildad goes on to say, God is just. Therefore, without exception, people get what they deserve. That's his worldview. Without exception, because of God's justice, people always get, in every situation, what they deserve. Now, what is, where is he right? In, anywhere. <laughs> and where is he wrong? Anywhere. In this articulation of his worldview. Is verse 3, Justin, read verse 3 again. Is verse 3 wrong? God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? That pervert uh, and right language in Hebrew are the crooked and straight language you see a lot in the Bible. Does God make crooked 
what is straight. We do that all the time. We pervert things. But does God ever take what is straight and make it crooked? No. No. He is right about the justice of God, that God is perfectly just, no exceptions. Is that the same as what Bildad concludes from it, which is that suffering is only and ever given to those who are guilty and deserve this suffering in this moment, that there is a one-to-one relationship between our sufferings and something we did that caused it? No. The justice of God does not demand that. Scripture speaks of a general relationship between obedience and blessing, between disobedience and rebuke. And, and even that, you've got to get real clear on what Scripture says about that relationship. Because that blessing for obedience, for righteousness, may include material elements. Health, wealth, popularity, recognition, business success, those types of things. It may include that. But they're not the core of what the Bible says is the blessing, is it? (laughs) Those are sort of accessory blessings. The core of the blessing that you get through obedience, through righteousness, is fellowship with God. That's the guaranteed blessing. If you are righteous, which is walking with God, you will, wait for it, walk with God. God will be there with you in that walk. If you choose to go your own way and walk apart from God, God will, wait for it, not be on that way. He will be in a different place. You will not be with him. And so walking with God at all times, especially in this life, in this world, does not mean there will be no pain. There will be no suffering. There will be no poverty, no sickness, no hurt. That's not what it means. It means you're walking with God. You're going to go whatever way God has set forth for you, which in this life does include a lot of suffering and pain and hardship. But the blessing, the guaranteed result of your obedience is that God is with you in the pain. God is with you in the trial, in the suffering, in the hardship. You actually have the presence of God with you. And this is why we're, not why, this is a great benefit of studying the book of Isaiah that we're going to start today is don't raise your hands. Don't out yourselves. But how many of us, when I said what I just said, had just the 1% feeling of, I wonder if I would choose no pain, even if it meant being without God. If the cost of walking with God is this pain, it's not obvious which I'd pick, right? I raise my hand. It's 1% there. It's, and so Isaiah is going to say, Your vision of God isn't big enough. And your vision of your sin isn't big enough. And so let me show you. If you'll see who God is, your sin, the problem you're in, and the invitation God offers, we can answer that question for you. Which would you choose? Um, Walking with God doesn't mean we'll never feel forsaken. It means we'll never be forsaken. Um, It doesn't mean we'll never suffer hardship and trials. It knows that we will never be abandoned to our hardship and trials. We will never be left alone in them without the ability to persevere through them. That is the blessing of obedience. And that's why the way we talk about this has to be so different from sort of the prosperity gospel, health and wealth thing, because it is certainly the case that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God can provide material blessing to any righteous person that he chooses. Up until all this calamity hit Job, he had done that for Job. But the promise of God was never obey me, walk with me, and all of this is yours. The promise of God was obey me and walk with me and whatever befalls you, I am walking with you through it. 
And that is what you actually need. And that is what we should ultimately desire once we have a real vision of God uh, that's not so beaten down by our circumstances and by the curse. So this gets us back to God's justice and what God's justice means for faithful people. It does not mean what Bildad claims. In the Bible, God's justice is reflected through the biblical praise of his righteousness. That's what they're talking about when they use the word righteousness of God. They're talking about his perfect justice. So think about Bible verses you know. What does the Bible say is the result for Christians because of God's justice, because of his righteousness? Who has Psalm 143.1? Kate? Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me. In your righteousness. Why can we be certain God will hear our cries and prayers? Because he's righteous. Because of his justice. It assures us of that. Who's got 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why can we be sure that when we confess our sins, they are actually and absolutely forgiven? Because of his justice, because of his righteousness, also because of his faithfulness. Well, different poster, faithfulness. <laughs> Who's got Romans 1, 16, 17? Noah? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is the gospel? It's the revelation of God's righteousness to his people, showing us our sin, showing us the righteousness of Christ, applying that to us by faith. It is a, it is a display, a manifestation of his righteousness. Incidentally, it's, there's a slight answer in there to the problem of evil. Why God would allow rebellion and sin and a fall in the world in the first place is if the gospel redemption is the manifestation of the attribute of God's righteousness, God's justice, how does the world that God has ever made see those attributes of God apart from the fall? So God would create us, he would have made a world that is never capable of seeing him for who he is, that is never capable of seeing his righteousness and justice because those attributes would never be manifest in a world that never fell. I'm not saying that solves the problem of evil. It is a component of the answer. Who's got Romans 5.21? So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans. Romans 5.21. That's right. Uh, Death is really real. We've all stood over the bodies. We've seen death. And death proves the reality of sin. And in Romans 5.21, Paul says that walking in new life, obedience, and eternal life with God proves the reality of God's justice. And I think it's not hard to to mix that a little bit and infer from it that our ability to walk in new life proves the reality of eternal life. You want to know how we can be certain that eternal life awaits us? Because we could not walk in new life unless the righteousness of God was revealed. That's the way Christians, believers, should understand and see the outworking of God's righteousness. Not this mechanical black and white calculation that Bildad is doing with Job. Derek Thomas said of that Romans passage, After receiving God's righteousness by faith, Paul was assured of it forever. Calvary makes it mandatory that God should bless his people. What does God have to do? What is God obligated to do? There's only one category, well, two-ish categories of things that God is obligated to do. 
what well, he's nobody. promised to do. <laughs> what he's promised to do. Why, are we, why do we have assurance of salvation? Because God will do what he said he will do. He's obligated to. He has to. He would cease to be God if he did not. It's not that somebody has this authority over him and makes him do it. His nature, his internal consistency, his truth and his righteousness mean that he will do exactly what he said he will do. That's why the covenant that he made with Abraham, that self-maledictory oath, if you look at Genesis 12, 15, and 18, is so amazing. There's nothing that God can swear by. God can't say, I promise or you can take all my stuff. You can't take God's stuff. (laughs) I promise or so-and-so is going to hold me accountable. Nobody can hold God accountable. So what does God do? He passes through dead animals and says, this is what will happen to me if I do not keep my word. That's God's righteousness for his people. It's his justice. This is how we're supposed to understand it. But to Bildad, that justice means something very different. It means that everyone in every situation gets exactly what they deserve. In uh, verses 3 and 4, he talks about Job's children the way Eliphaz did. And he basically says, look, they must have sinned to die this way. There's no other explanation for it. Well, okay, maybe that's a little bit nicer than Eliphaz's. Your sin is what made them die this way. But Eliphaz, or Bildad, doesn't even allow for that. He said, no, they, sin gets what it deserves immediately and without exception. And that's what happened to your children. And we need to see not just how wrong Bildad is, that is theologically inaccurate, even though he grounds it in a truth, which is God's justice, but the anti-comfort effect of what he just said. When he talks about Job's children having died in this dramatic way because of what must have been unrepentant, dramatic sin, He can't imagine a scenario where his theology is incorrect or incorrectly applied. And so he gives himself permission to just, without restraint, without consideration for Job, to just say it. Well, your children must have been horrible, horrible sinners at the time of their death to make this happen. And you understand what that implies about Job's children. He tells Job his children are in hell. He has no problem saying that. He has no hesitation or reservation saying, oh, your children are in hell. I mean, I don't want to be harsh. It's just the way it is. (coughs) Derek Thomas says they died in sin and because of sin. And even if it were true, it's not. Bildad, in drawing attention to it at this time, shows gross tactlessness. It's not that there are no scenarios where we could be confident somebody's in hell. We can all think about really extreme examples. We can think about people who hated God their whole lives and who cursed God and died and did evil on the way out and give you nothing to work with where we can feel pretty confident that that person is in hell. What I would just say to you as... uh, Let's call it comforters in training. We're all in training to become better comforters. What I would say to you as comforters is this. Any amount of evidence to the contrary, any, they weren't Hitler. (laughs) Any amount of evidence to the contrary should give you enough uncertainty to if not actually persuade you that it's possible to at least silence your lips out of compassion. There should be enough uncertainty in your mind about anyone who had any kind of fruit anywhere along the way that I'm not trying to persuade you that you should do some calculus and decide, yes, I think they're definitely in heaven and I'm going to tell everybody that they're... No, but just let your lips be silent because on this issue... You don't know, and it is better to leave that person 
in the arms, I mean the living person who is grieving, it is better to leave them in the arms of a gracious God and their thoughts in the arms of a gracious God than of a jerk friend like Bill Day. That's not good for their soul. But truth, truth must prevail. Hmm. You think you know a lot, don't you? you? You say things with great certainty, don't you? And I say this to myself. To have Let's call it indifference. I feel like for some people I've heard make comments like this, it's almost glee. Like they're almost glad to be able to talk about somebody in the third person receiving God's wrath eternally that they deserve. But let's just call it, um, let's just talk about indifference. To be so callously indifferent the way Bildad is, that you make a comment like that and then just say, of course it is. Bildad did not love Job's children. And he did not love Job. But you can't love someone and be this callously indifferent on that kind of issue. If we're trying to comfort someone, it should be because we love them. God called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to provide comfort. Not in the absence of truth, but comfort. It's at least on the list of things we're trying to accomplish. And what we're telling a person when we say with certainty, despite any kind of evidence, that this person is in hell, is that we don't love that person, they're an enemy of God, and you, the sufferer, grieving the loss of this person, you shouldn't love them either. Um, I'm not sure that's true if we were 99.9% certain about somebody's eternal condition, but I'm 100% true that that is not right when the, num- when the certainty is lower, which it almost always is. The only reason Bildad's number is so high, the only reason he is so confident about Job's children is because he has completely misapplied God's justice and completely misunderstands what that means in the believer's life. He has no reason to be this confident. No reason. And it is even the more to his shame that he comes barreling in with that confidence to the emotional destruction of his friend. Um, I get it. People who are wired like I'm wired, which is many of you. We don't want to make people feel better with lies. Like that's always our fear is that, well, I'm just saying this to make somebody feel better, even though it's not true. And we do watch people who are wired the other way on the other side of this. Y'all do that more than you should. (laughs) Where in your desire to make somebody feel better, you say something that isn't true. Or you reinforce something that isn't true. I had a client last week. Oh man! Um, in a, in a in a category of employee who ought to know better, somebody who's been a manager for a long time and who has trained managers. We had an underperforming employee that behind the scenes we're having conversations about. You know, is this person gonna? going to last? Are they going to be able to stay here? Have we communicated clearly enough what we need? Maybe it's a communication problem. Maybe they don't understand what we're looking for. So first we just check and make sure we're being fair to this person. But she knows these conversations are going on. And then we're in a meeting with a big group and this employee who's underperforming makes some comment about, you know, well, I'm, I may not be here very long. My, my contract is only uh, a few more weeks and I don't know if y'all are going to renew. And this employee who works with me, who ought to know better, trying to make him feel better, said, oh, it's not like we would let you go at the end of your contract. To which I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not even sure you're going to run out this whole contract. (laughs) We, We say things to make people feel better. And those of us who are wired the opposite of that, truth first rather than, than grace first, um, we're always really tense about protecting against that really tense about, "Mm, you can't just make people feel better to make them feel better. And you guys know that the Lord Jesus was neither of these extremes. It was not. He looked at a situation and determined, does this situation need grace or does it need truth? He looked at the situation and perfectly applied grace and truth. And that's really hard for fallen human beings. But it is at least the standard to which we have to hold ourselves. We can't just say, sorry, I'm a truth guy. I'll let somebody come uh, do the cleanup work on the grace later. No good. No good. We're not going down that path. Uh, Bildad should have been trying to comfort his friend. If he had truths he wanted to share, 
if he had a word from the Lord on his heart. Okay, fit that into the context of what you're supposed to be doing here, which is comforting your friend. Don't lose sight of that goal. It's really important when we comfort that we remember that as the goal. And so we we need to have in our minds, I'm not going to lie to provide comfort. I'm not going to, here's a list of things I can't do to provide comfort. But the goal is to provide comfort. And if that means we save a truth for another day, if that means we allow just a little bit of theological ambiguity on something somebody said in their grief, like Job's gigantic lament, that we'd like to clean that up a little bit theologically. I don't think we're going to write a confession of faith based on the first couple chapters of Job. You've got time. Trust God that there will be time and that if you're not the person who's supposed to clean that up, God will bring in their lives the person who is supposed to clean that up. But what you're supposed to do in this moment, the reason God brought Bildad to Job and his pile of steaming trash and his scabs was not to correct his worldview. It was to comfort him. And you can't lose sight of that. So questions up to this point? I need to drink coffee again. All right. Oh, go ahead. I mean, they started by not speaking for seven days. <laughs> it would have been better. But you were sort of saying, like, it almost would have been, it almost might have been better to even stay more silent than speak the truth, right? In a way? No, not speak the truth. Speak these truths misapplied. It would not have been better to stay silent. The ideal scenario would be to actually comfort people. And to comfort people, we have to ask questions and listen to them to understand how they feel and why they feel that way. And then we have to paint a vision of where God can take them through this. And then the little micromanaged details of how do we get from here to there are the last part of it. But every one of these friends jumps into the, this is how you fix this now. I don't care how you feel. I don't care how you got, this is how you, you can't say stuff like that, Joe. Joe, God, you know, God's listening, right? can't actually tell him that this is this is. and so yeah i mean for these bozos it would have been better if they didn't speak because what they do is worse but we can't let ourselves off the hook with you know the way i'm going to comfort i'm just not going to say anything wrong <laughs> so i'm not going to say anything at all uh the ministry of presence being present is what is a beginning it is not comfort uh and we we can't let ourselves off easy by pretending that it is. Hey, I was there for them. That's great. And then what did you do? Well, I mean, I was there. I was really present. <laughs> right, okay. I think the real indictment is that since all this disaster has befallen him, the indictment on the three friends is that a broken piece of pottery has been the most comforting thing in Joe's life. Uh, up into this point, and yeah. probably continuing for it's going to be a while. <laughs> just, just the piece of pottery that is providing some level of comfort, relief, yeah, is a better comforter than these jackasses. <laughs> That's the technical term. Like one of the best ways, or one, a good way to comfort people when you're gone, is you lived your life in such a way that they're confident. But where you're, where you are eternally. Yeah, that is exactly right. Um, the best hope we can offer one another of dealing with grief is that they will have seen throughout our lives our utter dependence on God, and it's why. I mean, I, I will, I will never stop saying this in this church because it is, I, it is the divinity of Christ. Okay, I get it. It's the most important thing in Christianity which is that the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not how much they sin. It's how much they repent. Repentance. Repentance. And so if we will show people a repentant life, we will do a great deal toward comforting them when we're gone. They don't want to sit there and make a catalog of our sins when we're dead. Was that too much for God? Was that... How's that? I mean, like, had the good three years there, and then this kind of rough, and then the, and then the, but maybe in the, no, no, no. Repentance. Was your life marked by meaningful 
repentance. And any period of that ought to fit into that category that I said before is it creates enough uncertainty that we should keep our mouths closed if we have any doubts. Where does Bildad's mistaken worldview come from? You know, Eliphaz, remember, claimed that his was built on special revelation, that God had sent these direct truths to him that he was now going to share with Job, and that, that was wrong. Bildad's is not built on special revelation. It's built on general revelation. What can we deduce and understand about God from the world around us? And his observation is this hard and fast reliance on cause and effect. So he starts by saying, look at our ancestors. You can look at what's happened to our ancestors. And from that, we deduce that God's actions are always just. Who's got eight, eight through 10? For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday who know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? The lessons of history, general revelation, are that God's punishments are directed at sin, and that's why the wicked perish. That's what happened to your kids. That's what you would... Uh, that's what would happen to you, except if you kind of skip to 20 to 22, you're a good enough man to turn back to God so you can prevent that outcome because of his justice, everything will be okay in the end. But Bildad just makes this rather lazy analysis of history and says, see, that's how God works. Then he uses three examples from nature to prove his point. The first is the papyrus. Who's got 8, 11 through 13? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water, while yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hopes of the godless shall perish. So papyrus, not a plant we encounter much today, but papyrus, um, the plant from which ancient paper was made, would sort of trick you. It could sprout up and grow with almost no water. Good morning. With with just the tiniest amount of water, not enough to survive, papyrus could grow. And so it would just pop up. And it's this massive leafed big plant. And so you'd look down and you'd see this giant thing sprouting up. And, oh, this is healthy. But it's, it's fool's gold. It tricks you because there's not enough water for it to live. So it would just immediately dry up and die and disappear. Uh, Jesus will use a similar analogy in one of his parables, right? The Seeds, sower, goes on soil, pops up, doesn't have what it needs to live, dies. That's what his point is here. And so Bildad's point is that Job's goodness is a flash in the pan. It looked holy. Your life looked good. But this suffering proves that that wasn't genuine. And then Bildad adds this sort of, oh, by the way, your response to this suffering really proves that you're not the real deal. Because nobody suffers like this and says to God, why am I suffering like this? No real believer. They get their theology straight the way Bildad did. The second example he gives is the spider's web. Who's got 14 and 15? Did I give that out? So, his confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. Spider's web looks strong, looks impressive, right? And spider's webs are strong enough to support a spider and some prey. But what happens if a man leans against a spider's web? Does it support him? Nope. It collapses. That's what Bildad is saying is the strength of Job's argument. Job's defense that... I am good. I have followed God. It may look strong to Job, but when Beldad puts a little pressure to that argument, when the weight of reality comes against it and some of the good things are taken away, his goodness comes tumbling down. And the suffering is what proves his guilt. Bildad actually makes arguments very similar to Satan's accusations against Job back in the beginning in the heavenly council. Then the third uh, illustration is the lush plant. Who's got 8, 16 through 19? Probably nobody because I failed to give it out. He is a lush plant before the sun and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him saying, I have never seen you. 
Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. All right, so this needs a little bit of explaining unless you do much uh, gourd farming, this lush plant. But these vines that can produce gourds uh, are 99% above ground. There's just these little tiny roots that are shoots into the ground to get water. And so when you rip out a gourd plant, there is nothing left behind. There is no evidence that it was ever there. It's completely forgotten. Compare that to like when you have a tree cut down. And I assume, like me, you're too cheap to pay to have the stump ground. So you cut down this tree, and then you look, and you got this stump forever. You have this reminder of what was there. And what Bildad is saying is that, remember, put this in context. context. What was Job's, when he started ignoring Eliphaz and just crying out directly to God a few chapters ago, and I said he cried out like a little child, what did Job say to God there at the very end? He said, you'll, you'll miss me when I'm gone. You'll, you'll miss me. And so it's just the, the, the depth of the cry of his heart. God, you'll miss me. And what Bildad says here is, I won't even remember you. Nobody will remember you. Nobody remembers the unrighteous. The unrighteous are forgotten forever. That's why nobody talks about Hitler ever. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just, nobody's like this. <laughs> Very helpful. Uh, he said, "You'll be, you'll be like this, you'll, you'll be like this vine or this lush plant, uh, where when it's gone, there is nothing left behind." So, what's wrong with Bildad? What's well, only two things? He does everything else right except for these two things. One is his attitude. His attitude is completely wrong. Derek Thomas says. Bildad is like the man of the world, the man who has experienced a little bit of life, and the wisdom and ages have been handed down to him, and so he is dismissive of anything and everyone else. This is, um, Daphne and I have laughed a lot over the years. It's the sort of sad, bittersweet laugh. And how many people have told us when we, they ask us about our children or we're getting to know them, um, especially, nearly always outside of the church. And you tell them, oh, you have three children, and, and they say, oh, well, what's that like? And we say, we love our kids. It's, it's delightful. We enjoy our kids. I mean, it's hard. Parenting's very, very hard. But we love our kids. We like being around them. And the number of people who've said to us over the years, well, you just wait until. You know, when Fagan was pregnant the first time, you just wait until. <laughs> You just wait until. You just wait until your kids are. And, I mean, granted, our oldest is 13. We haven't hit all the milestones they were complaining about yet. But we've hit a lot of them. You just wait until they can walk. You just wait until they can talk. You just wait until they're preteens. You just wait until... And, look, I'm not saying it's not hard. Parenting is very hard. We enjoy our children. We delight in our children. And when I read Bildad that attitude that I hear in him is that you just wait. I, I have this knowledge. I know this thing that you're just too ignorant and inexperienced to know yet. It's not possible for the speaker that they're just wrong. <laughs> that they're wrong. And Bildad's attitude is there's no way he's wrong. And so he can be dismissive of Job's accusation. He can ignore Job's pain and his feelings. He can be horribly disrespectful towards Job's children. Why? Because he knows a thing or two. It's awful. So that's one thing that he did wrong. Just this tiny thing, his attitude. The other thing he got wrong is his theology. Everything he believes. <laughs> um, Bildad is, is right that God's just, justice is perfect. But what he's wrong about is life under the curse Life under the curse involves living with the general effect of sin, the general result of sin, not simply the specific result of sin. If we were in a world where the way God had designed it was that every person actually inherits immediately the specific deserved result of their sin, none of us would be here. None of us would have ever been here. 
Adam and Eve would have been done physically, not just spiritually. And if God decided, now, you know what? I'm just going to special create from the dirt and from my breath every single human being. Not one of us in this room would be here. The moment we sin, we would perish. And I don't know how long y'all would make it, but it'd be measured in milliseconds, not years. We live life under the curse, under this general effect of sin, where we don't immediately get what we deserve, and what we get is not immediately and directly always connected to what we have done. It's connected to the fact that we live in a sin-stained world where other people's sin come to bear on our lives. We live in a cursed world that produces thorns and sweat of our brow and pain in childbirth and a desire to rule over husbands. And all of this is, is the, the ick in which we swim. And what God is calling us to do is not to say, now what specific thing that I did caused this ick? That's a personal analysis looking for our own sin, but it's to understand it's all ick. All of it apart from God is gross, disgusting filth of sin. And what God is calling us to do is to see the way out of it. Bildad is not right. Now, by the way, if Bildad's right, then God is wrong for putting the world under the curse and for, for putting the world under the results of that curse. Because that's more of a delayed consequence of sin. It's more a inferred consequence of sin. He should have killed Adam and Eve the moment they sinned, physically as well as spiritually. And so Bildad's accusation is really against God. God, you, you aren't as just as I say you are because you didn't do this right. But God is not unjust for putting the world under a curse or for ordaining the results of that curse. What, As we close, what are... What good comes from the curse? I mean, set aside the part that we wouldn't exist if God hadn't gone this path. <laughs> what good comes from the curse? Good. What you mentioned earlier, I think, about knowing God's character of mercy. It, it's, yes. Let me back up one step. I'll say more about that in a second. There's one other real good, real essential good that comes from the curse. Redemption. <laughs> you were such a cheater. No, that's the one he just said. That is redemption. What happens before redemption? What do you have to do before you can turn? You have to see. Before you turn, you must see. And the curse tells the truth about sin and about God's holiness. The curse is how we perceive that this isn't right. This isn't the way things ought to be. This world does not well reflect the character of our God when the curse is what we're seeing. And so through the curse, we see we've got a problem. There's this general problem. The world should be crying out for redemption. This place is a mess. And oh, by the way, oh, oh, there's a very specific problem. I've met the enemy and he is us. <laughs> I have a sin problem. And then because I see the curse allows me, it provides for that sense of brokenness that turns me toward redemption, that makes me open toward redemption. If you think you're okay and getting better, you don't turn toward redemption. If you think you've got this under control and you can save yourself, you don't turn toward redemption. If you think you don't need to be saved, you don't turn toward redemption. And the curse is one of God's tool in helping us see all of that brokenness from which we can then turn and find life rather than death. And since that's what the whole Isaiah Sermon series is about, we're done. Thank you. <laughs>